my plan is to uh, tell some stories and uh, read some poetry and uh, give some instructions and uh, I hope teach some very good Dharma and I had a whole number of strings that uh, questions that came up in the hall this morning and in interviews today that I have been putting together and we'll see if it comes out as I plan it to uh, which is really to talk some more about the three characteristics of experience and really if I were to call it a less formal name than the three characteristics of experience impermanence and uh, dukkha suffering and uh, emptiness anatta I would call it uh, what happens when you stop the story and why it's sometimes worrisome to stop the story and why it's hard to stop the story and why actually liberation depends on stopping the story. So some of the uh, questions and ideas that I had in my mind were um, Hatsi's concern this morning, uh-oh, what if it's just experience, don't I? Uh, I becomes irrelevant. Actually, I does become irrelevant, but what I, what I trust is true is that we want it to be irrelevant, that it gets in the way. Or uh, Belisha's comment this morning about what is it, what was that word that Ajahn Sumedho used? And what about practice and seeing is divine? And some instructions that James gave this morning when he uh, said you could pay attention to this or you could pay attention to that, you could pay attention to this or you could pay attention to that, or if you wanted to, you could actually pay attention to this also. And then he went on and said, but you will know what's right for you and what works for you. I think it's tremendously important to say that and to really uh, say for each person, we are each of us the discoverer of what it is for us that stops the story. And uh, Guy's comment of yesterday where he said uh, that one of the things that really noted worked for him for stopping the story was really taking seriously the practice of mental noting, of really making the name in the mind quietly, not so that it supersedes the experience, but that it really directs all of the attention into the experience of what's happening right now. And uh, the, ex the explanation that he gave of why it actually took him quite a long time to get ready to do that in a steadfast way, because it, uh, he was obliged to recognize that if he were to note, he would have to stop telling himself his stories, and that his stories were actually quite interesting to him. Many people have come to interviews and said, you know, the breath is so incredibly boring, all day breath, but my stories now, those are really entertaining. Walking is the same walk, everybody walks, it's nothing walking, but my stories, that is really interesting. And as uh, Gil pointed out extremely well the other day, actually the stories are tedious. Sometimes they're quite interesting, sometimes they're funny, or sometimes they're not frightening, but the first time around, you know? And <laughs> not over and over and over again. For the most part, we tell ourselves those stories incessantly. You remember he said, what if someone followed you around all day? and told you the same stories that you're telling you all day, it would be really tremendously tedious. So I thought I would tell you a story. <laughs> the most recent piece of my experience uh, having to do with uh, a way I could teach this was last night I uh, opened my mail. I had two pieces of mail. One of them was a letter and one of them was a box and the box had a manuscript of a new rendition of a Sufi poet, name is Hafiz, and uh, a book called uh, The Gift. So I, so okay, and that's a nice new manuscript, and I didn't have time to look at it. But I did read the letter, 
And the letter was from an organization uh, that's planning a program that I'm involved in planning. And the letter was letting me know that they've decided, the executive committee has decided to do this and this and this. And it's actually a decision that I had another opinion about and uh, that I told them my opinion about. That the last time we talked about it, I had another view and I got a letter that said, we're doing it this way. Not particularly addressed to me, addressed to everybody in the whole planning procedure, but nevertheless, certainly I felt it addressed to me because it said we've decided to do this, which is not what you had in mind. Anyway, I went to bed, I was a little bit disappointed, but I went to bed and I fell asleep and then I got up at about three o'clock in the morning and I started to think about the letter. And I started to think about, how could they have done that? I'm so completely involved with that organization. and I had such a good idea. And how could they do I'm, I started to compose a letter back to them about them making a mistake. And not only that, but they were incurring my disfavor. And I had all kinds of ways. I can't say that straight out. So I have to figure out a way to say that. And how disappointed I was and how unwise. And I told the story over and over. I embellished it. I rewrote the letter a few times. Then I discovered I'd completely woken myself up and agitated myself. And then I couldn't fall back to sleep. And then I felt really bad about that. I couldn't fall back to sleep. I'd have to get up early in the morning. I'm going to be exhausted tomorrow. I tossed for actually a few hours agitating about that story. And I saw that I had created that whole mess for myself. But nevertheless, I'd created it. Then I had to deal with it. I had to breathe, be with your breath. Anyway, finally I fell asleep. Then I got up very early in the morning and uh, I started to read the manuscript. By page 40 of the manuscript, I was laughing and feeling quite clear about how I'd gotten caught and that we get caught. And, again and again and again. So I thought I'd read you. Maybe a few of these short poems. This is called Crooked Deals. There is a madman inside of you who is always running for office. Why vote him in? For he never keeps the account straight. He gets all kinds of crooked deals happening all over town that will just give you a big headache and glue to your kisser a giant, confused frown. <laughs> this is another poem. It's called The Sad Game. Blame keeps the sad game going. It keeps stealing all your wealth giving it to an imbecile with no financial skills. Dear one, wise up. <laughs> one more Sufi poem. It's called Get the Blame Straight. Understanding the physics of God, his individual, indivisible nature makes every universe an atom confess. I am just a helpless puppet that cannot dance without the movement of his hand. Dear ones, this curriculum tonight is for the advance and will get all the blame straight. End the mental lawsuits that clog the brain. Hallelujah, baby. So the part that I underlined for myself and laughed about is end the mental lawsuits that clog the brain. Now, lest you have the thought, oh, I should have taken up Sufi practice. What am I doing here? The Sufis have it right. I'd like to read uh, Kala Rinpoche. This says the same thing. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. Knowing that, we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So I got up this morning and I read the Sufi poetry and I put my head back on straight. And I realized I'd gotten caught again.
and I was fine. It's not good to tell yourself stories over and over again. We do what we can do, make a space for everyone's doing what they can do. It's important to keep on saying as we practice together over this amount of time and as we practice together forever and ever, that we keep reminding ourselves, why are we doing this? Sometimes when people come in for interviews, they have a concern which sounds to me that they're worrying about whether they're doing a technique right. Am I walking right? Am I breathing right? I can't be with the breath. It's not about walking right or breathing right or being a good meditator. It's really about seeing clearly what's the deep truth of things. Sometimes we talk a lot about being present in the experience. Being present in every moment of experience is part one of this practice. We need to be present to get to see what's happening. We need to get to be here. But that's only part one. Part two is once we get here, seeing what's true. There are lots of things that we do in which we either are present or hope to be present. I like to really be present if I ski or if I dance. Lots of things that are enhanced by being present, but there isn't necessarily any wisdom in them. They're pleasant, more pleasant if you're present. But what we do here is we get to be here, present, by stopping the story, and then we look and see what's true. We get really to see that everything passes. We get to see in some profound way the real context of unsatisfactoriness that really is fundamental in life. doesn't mean that there isn't beauty or wonder or poetry or magic. It means that nothing lasts, and so there's no place of permanent comfort and satisfaction. It's hard to see that sometimes, because it's alarming. But we get to recognize that um, on all levels that there is suffering, the redemptive response to it is compassion. And we get to realize that all this effort that we spend protecting a mythical I who is separate is extra effort and gets in the way of really living in a connected and responsive and compassionate and loving way. Often, I think, when people are outside of this practice and look at it from a distance, because at least in this intensive form, we sit still and we're quiet. We have this custom of not looking at each other and often of moving slowly, that there's a sense of coolness about practice. And I actually think it's some tremendously passionate practice. We're trying most diligently to see so clearly that we can really open fully with a heart of love and compassion, free really to be completely available to everyone and everything. So I was thinking about all of the instructions to get here, our instructions to get here, and then the instruction is just stay and wait. Wait with alertness for what happens. Abide is a good, a better word. Um, wait has a kind of a pulling about it. Abide. Abide in balanced attention. And expect to be surprised. So it occurred to me that when I was going to say that, that I thought, I wondered when uh, I first heard a talk about the characteristics of experience 
And uh, whoever it was who was giving the talk said, well, I'm now going to tell you the three characteristics of experience. And I thought, no, 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 don't tell me, because then I won't be surprised if you tell me. Uh, it's like if somebody says, you're about to read that mystery book, I'm now going to tell you what happens on the last page, who actually did it. I say, no, 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 don't tell me. But that's not the way it is. There's a way of hearing about what's true and actually knowing it in some direct and immediate way in the marrow of our bones and the sinews of our body where you cannot forget it, where it really is part of the lens through which you see the world. And I think we learn it again and again and again. When you hear it for the first time, everything is impermanent, everything changes. In any of the many ways in which you can talk about suffering, just to take one of them, the suffering that is the clinging to any kind of experience, since everything is ephemeral. And yet we cling so much. When I first heard these characteristics of experience, and I, I thought to myself, well, they're right about that, uh, impermanent, for sure. I get that about yesterday happened, and last year happened, and the Civil War happened, and Columbus coming to America, that was in the past. I, I really got about, and I'm getting older, and so I got about impermanence. I said, that's right. And then I got it about suffering, about the things that I could not relax and say, well, this is the way it is. I wish it were other, but this is the way it is. That, in fact, when I struggled with how things were, that I suffered. I, I, I got that. I got it intellectually, for sure. I couldn't actually do very much about it, but I got it intellectually. It said, that seemed right. And then they said the third characteristic about actually there's no one who owns the experience. It's just experience arising, conditioned, of course, by conditions, but arising and passing away moment to moment. It's not happening to anyone. And I thought, no, no, they're wrong about that. It's happening to me. It's quite clear that it's happening to me. That I am in here. I am behind my eyes and in between my ears and in my mouth and in my nose and in my body. And they're wrong. Um, but I, I actually thought to myself, two out of three is not bad. And I like these folks and they seem okay. And uh, I like the other things that they say. So this particular thing that they're wrong about, they'll figure it out someday that they're wrong. I won't have to tell them about it. And in the meantime, I can sit here because I'm happy enough here. I don't have to tell them that I don't believe it. It's not true. Actually, it's true. But that came much later. So I tell you all that because I know for a number of people, that particular third one, they say, okay, I get this and this, but... Not only does that not seem right to me, but it worries me. Again, you know, what if I'm irrelevant and I've devoted all this effort to something that's not there? <laughs> what if? But what if you stopped worrying about what was there? I heard the, there's a very long story, which I, I'll tell just the end of. So I just remembered. I was at a conference once where the Dalai Lama was teaching and uh, he was teaching in Tibetan, uh, doing exegesis of a certain text. And uh, his translator, he would do in Tibetan, the translator would respond, he would do, the translator would in, translate, he would do. And at one point, the translator said something or other, and it looked like the Dalai Lama was studying his next verse, but he was actually at the same time listening. And he turned to the translator and he said, no, no, you got that wrong, I said this. Translator said, no, no, it says that. He said, no, no, no. You have that wrong. I said this. And the translator said, no, no, in the text it says that. And Dalai Lama looked back in the text, and he looked up, and he said, you're right. I made a mistake. Ha! Ah! And it was so wonderful, because there were 1,200 people in that room. And he, it was nothing. I, I thought to myself, I really don't want to make a mistake in front of 1,200 people. I don't want to make a mistake in front of two people. But I, but... The Dalai Lama is not worried about protecting a mythical 
image of himself. He made a mistake, finished. It was the best teaching. I was there for a week. He taught a whole wonderful text. That piece of his behavior in the middle of the text was the best learning I had in the whole week. Those three characteristics of experience, that things are impermanent, that, uh, that unsatisfactoriness is the very context of all arising and passing away. It's the truth of it. And that there's no one who owns anything, just arising and passing away. Not seeing them is really the cause of suffering. Even as we begin to see them, we keep forgetting them and getting caught again. Actually, it's amazing to me how that happens. When Guy said the other night when he did the card trick, and then he said, well, now that you know how it works, is it less magical? I thought, I've been thinking about it ever since. I don't think it's so much less magical. I'm sort of interested in it anyway, because I think it's magic in a certain way, or it's mysterious to me how in a certain way we can get it, there's no one there. We can have a clear understanding of there's no one there. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you think about a letter that someone wrote, and a whole story starts, and all the agitation in the mind. We stir up, we, ghosts come to visit, and we make a big deal out of it and have a bad time with it. So there's actually a difference between even thinking that sounds like a right idea, that sounds like a good idea, and actually getting it in some direct way. So what we are hoping to do here is just make the situations optimal for the stories to stop, for abiding presence, and for revelation, really, for the seeing of insights, which happen in every moment. It's not like you have to wait for some special thing to happen. Remember once uh, having being at a retreat, actually being in Angela Center. I remember exactly the flight of stairs. We were walking to that flight of stairs. My mind had filled with some very long and elaborate and complex and apparently important and captivating thought, and I got to the stairs. And I suddenly remembered about noting. And so I went up the flight of stairs saying to myself, touch, 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 as my feet touched. And I got to the top and I thought, well, phew, did that flight of stairs, noted everything. Now I'll continue that thought. And it was all gone, and I couldn't remember what it was. Now, that happens all the time, of course. But I was so blown away by it, because it was this huge and elaborate and important thought. And it was just like a balloon. It was gone, like somebody put a pin in a balloon. It never happened. It's all made out of air, all those thoughts. Nothing. I remember when I first... um, began to practice, I would come and uh, uh, tell my experience to my teachers. I'd come in and say, maybe on the first or the second day, everything hurts me, I'm uncomfortable, I'm unhappy, it's happening, my back, my knees. And I, all I can remember, is because I thought about it at the time, is they would listen and they would say, it'll pass. And then I'd come back, however many days later, and I'd say, you know, I feel really good. Uh, I've settled down a little bit. My body's a little bit more relaxed. Um, I'm not uncomfortable when I sit. Uh, it's really lovely here. The food's very good. I'm happy. And uh, they'd say, it'll pass. And I began to think, that's all these folks know how to say is, it'll pass. I've been thinking about uh, my friend Sheila, with whom I sometimes teach, has been telling a story about... Uh, a friend of hers, it's, it's sort of a sad story because it's a friend of hers, aunt, who has, is quite old and has um, become quite senile. And really, as she's been more and more forgetful, one of the things that she's forgotten is how to talk. 
She's forgotten vocabulary. And of all the words in the whole world, she has only two words left. So she responds to people when they talk to her, but she says one or both of her two words. And her words are temporarily <laughs> and unexpectedly. And I think to myself, it's like amazing dharma. <laughs> Temporarily, unexpectedly, we're filled with a mood or an alarm or a worry or a body sensation or something. Temporarily and unexpectedly. So the way to see that they are temporarily, here's the instruction for practice, is to look for the beginnings and ends of things. One of the ways in which I sometimes give instructions for practice, I'll probably do it tomorrow morning, since tomorrow morning will be the day to give the instructions, is I really give instructions in terms of attending to not what's happening, but what's true about what's happening. So I often like to say things like, let the attention rest in the arising of the breath and the passing away of the breath. Notice the arising and the passing away, or the arising of different body sensations and their passing away. I was teaching a retreat many, many years ago um, in a retreat center somewhere where uh, many different kinds of retreats happened, so it wasn't particularly in any tradition. And all the folks in this retreat were novices to this practice and hearing the instructions for the first time. And it was a five or seven day retreat, and the days went on, and I, as I guess is my wont, tended to give the instructions for paying attention to anything in terms of its arising and passing away, really because I wanted to do what's called, um, in this tradition, inclining the mind in the direction of insight. It's kind of like you give it the idea. So if I say, notice for the arising and passing away of the breath, and notice the arising and passing away. And from time to time, I would say, uh, and as part of those instructions, as just a fact, everything that arises passes away. And then I go on, give some more instructions. Maybe I said it one time too many. Because one afternoon, in the middle of the instructions, you know how when I give instructions here, or anybody does, Everybody sits here quietly. It's the ethic, right? So here I am giving the instructions in what I hope is a pleasant tone of voice, saying, watch, attend as you're sitting here to the arising and the passing away of the breath. Notice that, that that's true of each breath. Everything that arises passes away. And some student in the group burst out as if he couldn't contain himself any further. And he said, why do you keep saying that? I can't bear that you say that. I really felt tremendously you know, empathic. I, mean, I, I said, I keep saying it because it's true. But maybe I had said it too many times. I think it's frightening to people the first time. I mean, really, when you think about it, isn't it surprising to you, however old you are, that you got here? And I look back, and it seems like yesterday I got married, and it's many, many years ago. It seems like yesterday. And sometimes if I think about when I get married, which the day of which is so clear, and I said, and the other person said, and this one said, I think, what, the, what happened to the, all those in-between years? They disappeared. They're gone, like that whole bubble of thought on the steps. Everything is gone. It's all gone. There's nothing. Really, it's a memory trace, but it's all gone. And in a moment, really. So sometimes I think it's really scary. So you think, whoops, if that happened in a moment, maybe tomorrow I'll get up and I'll be 80. Or what am I doing with my life? There are all kinds of ways in which sometimes when people discover, in fact, that every moment is fleeting and gone, that 
there's a sense of real poignancy about it is gone. Only this moment is here. There's also the other side of it, which I think is really the part that liberates us and engages us and really connects us to life in some way in which we really are alive. When we get it, that there's only this moment, then I think we start being awake to it. There is only this moment. To really be in it, to really be alive in it, I think we really begin to cherish each moment. I think for myself, I don't look forward very much to what's going to be. Like two weeks from now, I'll have a holiday. Today, here I am. I'm not going to have today again. There's a way in which I think it wakes us up in our life, in which we are really alive. It's also scary to discover about how much uh, the flavor of uh, uncomfortableness or unsatisfactoriness really is constantly a part of our experience. Here's the practice instruction because it comes along with intention that many of you have been working with noticing the intention before an action. So there are things that happen that we don't intend. As we sit, I've really been encouraging people to feel as they sit that we are breathed, actually, because actually that's what's happening. Breathing is not intentional, volitional. It happens as long as life force is present. But anything that is a movement from this place to someplace else, anything that we do that's a volitional movement is preceded by an intention. And as people have begun to see that, that they don't magically find themselves in front of the water fountain, that actually what happened is, as they were sitting or walking or whatever, a feeling of thirstiness arose. And then an image, perhaps, or a thought of a drink of water arose. And then uh, the desire to go get some of that arose. And then an intention arose in the body. And it stood up, and it went to the water fountain, and there you are. And then if you look really closely, you see, in fact, that all of our actions, going from here to there, or there to here, or doing this or that now, are really pushed along by discomfort. You notice that nothing stays comfortable, and we're kind of chased or pushed through our lives by discomfort, making ourselves comfortable, making ourselves comfortable, making ourselves comfortable. Sometimes, when you see that, you see, really, that that's the nature of being, of this form, of a human body. It has to keep readjusting itself and getting fed and cleaned and refreshed, well-slept and all of that. <clears throat> and begin to see that the extra suffering that we cause on top of that amount of needing to deal with bodies by the, the stories we tell ourselves and the problems we create by stirring up the mind, there's a way in which we can really get sad, start to tell ourselves sad stories about how difficult it is, how difficult having a life is. When I remember talking to my teacher Joseph about the a really particular period of my, during a really certain time in my practice, where it was so clear to me that things were in a constantly in a state of decay, that my feeling of comfort would soon change into a feeling of discomfort, that my sense of ease would turn into disease, my sense of full would turn into hungry, that every state was ending in some sort of a loss for me. It's a very difficult time. I'd look around and I'd say, we're all, I'm pushed around by discomfort. Everybody else is pushed around by discomfort. We're all pushed around by discomfort. 
And I carried on for a while like that, and he agreed with me, listened to me. And then at the end, when I was leaving that interview, he said, um, be very careful, Sylvia, not to let this insight into suffering color and aversion to life experience. I remember the moment very well, because I remember I had my hand on the doorknob, and I said, thank you very much, and I went out and uh, closed the door, and then I thought to myself, wait a minute, how should I not let it condition an aversion to life experience? Seems pretty dreary getting pushed around by discomfort. Actually, what happened in that period of time, without the instruction for how, is that the mind, after a while, balances itself. It sees for a while only the loss, only the change into discomfort, only the decaying of things. And then after a while, it sees the decaying of things and the arising of things. And it balances itself. You begin to be able to see, this is extraordinary. It's all borning and dying. Every idea, every moment, every sensation, every person, every season, it's all borning and dying. It's okay. That's how it is. Actually, it's quite miraculous. It's all borning and dying. and My sense of myself is being reborn all the time. If we really pay attention, it gets to be not only okay, but quite miraculous. Seven years later, uh, I was again, uh, I was practicing with um, my teacher at that point was Sharon Salzberg. And uh, I was leaving her room one time at the end of an interview. And uh, I, so my, many of my interview instructions happen when my hand is on the doorknob. I'm about to leave, I was about to leave Sharon's room, and she said, uh, Remember, Sylvia, be happy. And um, I actually, she said that all the time. So I used to think to myself, well, that's probably a salutation, like have a good day or goodbye or something. <laughs> then I realized it's not a salutation, it's an instruction. And uh, the instruction would arise in my mind as I was in any part of my practice, going for a walk or sitting or doing anything. And my mind would get tied in a knot with a story or a mood that I then created another story around or an aversion to or a problem with or a struggle with, forgetting that they are all ephemeral, that they're all coming and going, that they're ghosts, get caught in a story, and the voice of Sharon would arise in my mind and it would say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I think to myself, I'm not happy. And then, that was a sign to myself that I should pay attention. I'd pay attention to this footstep, and this footstep, and this footstep, and this footstep, and the whole mood disappears, and the whole thought pattern disappears, and just there. And you get free. So I have Joseph's remark and Sharon's remark. I'll tell you Sylvia's remark, so in case I don't have you at the doorknob, in my room this time. <laughs> Sylvia's remark is uh, practice continuously. Don't stop. It means all the time coming back to here and back to here with whatever skillful means you know to stop the story. Be with the breath, be with the feeling, be with the sense of the feet. Be here now. Somebody already said that though, so I can't say that. Had somebody thought of that way before I did as an instruction. You know, there's a, I was remi- I'm just reminded of a cartoon apropos of Be Here Now. It's a cartoon uh, uh, from a New Yorker years ago. There are two meditators sitting next to each other. They, from the look of their robes, they look like Zen meditators. But one is leaning over to the other. They're clearly novices in this meditation scene. And one is leaning over to the other, clearly responding to a question that the other person has asked. And he says to him, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> and 
there's tremendous dharma wisdom in that because it doesn't just mean it's boring, it retreats and nothing happens there. It means nothing ever happens next. There is no next. Anything that happens, happens now. Sometimes people worry about they'll have an insight into suffering and they'll become too vulnerable, too sad, their own suffering, other people's suffering, the way we create extra suffering. People say, I'll get too vulnerable. I think you can't be too vulnerable. Vulnerable is good. Makes us more compassionate. It's the good side of that realization. We get kinder. If someone would have said to me, take up this practice, you'll get kinder. I would have said, no, no, I'm kind enough, it's okay. I'm actually frightened, that's why I need a practice for fear. It actually makes you less frightened. I think ultimately fearless. And I got a lot more kind. So we'll talk a little bit about that insight of emptiness. and It frightens people to discover that they're not there sometimes. There's no one there. I was... <clears throat> recently, it uh, happens all the time, you know, that you recognize it. Recognize it here. If you rest your attention really in the middle of your experience, you'll see it's just experience. No one is having it. Just experience. Sometimes it doesn't have to happen on retreat. I mean, it's not the kind of experience that... I was in the parking lot of uh, my car dealership not too long ago, and they had had to do some complicated repairs on my car, so I had had to leave my car for two days and take a rental car from their agency. And I went back to return the rental car and get my car. And I had been carrying that particular week all kinds of boxes of books for various classes that I was teaching and papers. And so when I picked up the rental car, I had to move all these boxes from my car into the rental car. And then when I came back, I, they said, well, your car is that right out in back. Just take the rental car out near it and leave it right next to your car and then take your car. Okay, sign the papers, go in the back. And I was in a really relaxed place, attentive, awake, not troubled, not caught in any kind of a story. And uh, I parked this car right next to my car and I opened the door of the rental car, I opened the door of my car, and I moved the boxes from one car to another. Mind alert awake, not doing anything, just back and forth, back and forth, one box, next box. Then I finished, and I looked up, and boxes were in my car, and I had just such a hit of no one moved those boxes. They were in this car, now they're in this car, but no one moved the boxes. And I had such a clear hit of no one ever does anything. Stuff happens. Actions happen. Stuff happens. There's a moment where you know none of that was... um, I wasn't preoccupied. I wasn't some other place. I wasn't telling myself a story. Just conditions arose. The boxes moved from one car to another. And it was, I got such a kick out of it. I just laughed. I thought, look at that. That's what always happens. Nothing, no one does it. Just things happen according to conditions. One of the things that's the great, great gift of discovering that there's no one here is you really get to see that there's no one there. And the separations that the imagined separations that solidify around you and me fall away. We can have real relationships with people, not based on stories about ourselves and stories about them. I had a 10-year grudge once. I'm not a really, I'm not really a, given to grudges. I don't have a lot of grudges. I have other problems, but grudge is not... Irritability is not my long suit, or not my weak point. And I don't have a lot of grudges, but I once had a 10-year grudge. And I had the grudge on the basis of another letter. It's interesting, I hadn't thought about it. Many years ago, um, 
more than 10 years ago, I got a letter from somebody that directly accused me of being a certain way. And I took such umbrage about it. It hurt my feelings so much. Actually, it hurt my feelings so much. I was just furious that this person had that opinion of me. But I was first furious, then under the furious I realized my feelings were hurt. But then I was furious. How could that person say that about me? And you know, he just said it in a letter. He didn't say it in the local newspaper. He didn't say it to anybody else as far as I know. He just said it to me in a letter. And I was just so insulted. I was in pain. I was also in pain. I was in pain with how angry I was. I was in pain about how humiliated I was that this person even could think that about me and say that about me. And how did he? Just huge. And then for ten years, I had that grudge. I know it was ten years because, uh, or about that time, because although it wasn't a person that I have intimate contact with all the time. It's not a person in my immediate family or my circle of associates or my teaching colleagues. It's a a local enough person that I tended to run into that person from time to time. From time to time, we'd even show up in the same place, both on a program doing something together. And certainly we're reasonably polite and cordial to each other. But in my heart, every time I saw that person, I saw that person with that story. Aha, uh-huh, here comes so-and-so who said this and this about me. And that was never a person just by himself. It was never, here comes so-and-so. It was, here comes so-and-so who said that about me. So for about 10 years that went on. And each time I would think that thought, here comes so-and-so who said that about me, I'd think to myself, the whole story around that, how could he have said that about me? How could he have thought that? <laughs> Nobody else thinks that about me. Why did he say that? And it's so not nice. And he shouldn't have done that. A whole long story about it. So one day, and so a number of times I was in the same place as this person. One day I was going to some event, driving there. I was going to be some sort of a presenter at that event. And I was driving along and it was awake and balanced, and in one of those places where my mind was pretty relaxed and awake and alert, in a good mood about going where I was. I probably had a certain amount of delight buoying up my mind, my heart. On the way, I thought to myself, so-and-so is probably going to be there. (laughs) And I thought it without the story. Then I thought, nothing... I noticed that, and then I thought to myself, the usual question that usually came up, I wonder why he said that about me. (laughs) And then I thought, he said that about me, because it's true. So, then when I got to the place, and I met that person in the course of the evening, I was able to say to him, hello, I'm really glad to see you, because I was was right. That's how I was. That thing that he said at that time was true of me at that time. I said, hello, I'm really glad to see you. He said, I'm really glad to see you too. And you know when somebody says it, and you mean it, and they mean it. And we both knew it. And we did our things that evening, and then afterwards uh, he said, you want to have lunch? And I said, yeah. And we've become great buddies. And uh, for a while, Uh, This is now some years, but for a while in the beginning part of our renewed relationship, we'd uh, meet for lunch once a month, two, and uh, talk about all kinds of things of mutual interest to us, what we were teaching or learning or doing. And we didn't talk about that whole ten years. And then one day I said, you know, I think I'd like to tell you the story of my experience of those ten years. And I told that story just as I told it to you. I got that letter that you wrote. And I was so humiliated and so angry and so enraged. And every time I saw you for all those years, I thought, 
how could you have said this about me? And every time I'd fire myself up again, and I would think to myself sometimes, there's only one person in the world that I can't forgive for saying that. Everybody else I forgive, but not that person. And I said, and finally, the night that I met you, and we re-began our relationship, I said I was driving, and on the way I thought to myself, how could he have said that about me? And then I thought, he was right. And then my friend said, no, I wasn't. (laughs) And then he told his whole side of the story from the very beginning. It was really quite lovely. But for that to happen, the stories had to stop. The story around all of that, me retreating into my position of how could he have said that about me, protecting really what doesn't need to be protected because it isn't there. We really get to be free to love. That's really the great secret of this practice. We can love our lives. We can love people. It doesn't mean we have to like everything or be pleased with everything. But we don't have to be in an adversarial stance with anything. Everything that's happening is happening according to conditions. The lawful arising Ajahn Sumedho's quote about the divine has to do with when you see the extraordinary, intricate, amazing way in which things occur by according to conditions. And when we see them clearly, it's a cause for great ease and freedom and happiness. So maybe I'll read you another poem. This is called The Strange Feather. All the craziness, all the empty plots, all the ghosts and fears, all the grudges and sorrows have now passed. I must have inhaled a strange feather that finally fell out. Maybe this is the last one. My dear, this world, its laws, our perceptions, are such a minute part of existence. Should not all of our suffering and sadness be like this, as just dropped from an infant's palm that is asleep against the breast of God? The earth braces itself for the feet of a lover of God about to dance. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. Knowing that, we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So we'll sit for a minute. 